This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Mad Splainers feature. I'm Mad Splainers co-host Abby Becker, and today I'm speaking with my fellow co-host and podcast producer Natalie Yar, who took a look at the pandemic's outsized effect on the Latino community. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Thanks for having me, Abby. So you spoke with a few local Latinos who contracted COVID. Can you tell me about Sonia Avila? Absolutely. Yeah. Sonia Avila is 61 and she lives here in Madison with her husband, Carlos. And uh, together they run uh, Ballet Folklorico Mexico, uh, which is a uh, dance company and dance school for people to learn uh, Aztec and Mexican folkloric dance. They are retired um, from their other jobs. And they knew early in the pandemic that this was going to be a serious thing. Back in early March, um, before many of us um, had changed much about their lives, they had canceled uh, their weekly dance classes and indefinitely and told their their members that they just couldn't meet in person anymore. She and Carlos stayed home as much as they could. Um, you know, they're fortunate to be retired. Um, but in early November, they both got sick. Um, and uh, soon she tested positive for COVID-19. And uh, her symptoms went from, you know, some pain um, that soon spread kind of throughout her body. She had a terrible fever. Um, She had nightmares in which she saw death itself coming for her. Um, And she ended up in the emergency room um, and fortunately improved significantly after getting medicine for a lung infection. And she improved quickly. But she's still pretty traumatized by the whole experience. Uh, She hasn't fully recovered. She still gets tired even from just having a conversation for too long. Um, She doesn't feel up for going for the walks that she and Carlos used to go on. Um, And she's really scared that she's going to get the virus again. Uh, And she's worried it could be worse the second time around. And you reported that Latinos locally and across the country have been getting COVID and getting hospitalized for COVID at really disproportionate rates. What are some of the reasons for that? Yeah, so there's a long list of reasons for that. So in terms of increased chance of getting more sick from the virus, uh, you've got you know higher rates of diabetes and high blood pressure and obesity. Those would be factors that can make one more likely to get seriously sick. Um, But as far as being more likely to get the virus in the first place, you've got a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, Latinos, like Black Americans, are disproportionately likely to be working in jobs that can't be done remotely. Um, And some of those are the essential work jobs that we've talked about a lot during the pandemic. So folks are more likely to work in kind of high-contact jobs or tighter working conditions. They're also more likely to live in multi-generational or crowded homes, which can increase one's exposure and make it harder to isolate if you um, get sick or you're exposed to the virus. Um, Then you've got other poverty factors. Um, You know, in Dane County, according to a 2016 Latino Consortium for Action report, 
Uh, Latino households earn 46 percent less than non-Hispanic white households. And so folks are less likely to be able to take the time off from work if they're sick or exposed. And then on top of that, you've got additional challenges for the folks who are undocumented. So folks who are undocumented are less likely to have health insurance. And if they're working under the table, they may not get all the same workplace protections. Um, They don't qualify for unemployment compensation or federal stimulus funds. And those are some of the things that have helped other families make it through the pandemic or maybe be able to avoid risky situations. So those are some of the the key reasons that Latinos can be at, at higher risk in this situation. But your story also takes a look at the many ways that Latinos have mobilized locally to protect and support each other. Um, and there were quite a number of efforts here. Tell me about some of those. Yes, I will I will not attempt to list them all here. But basically, um, kind of the story of the pandemic response is, I would say, one of a lot of Latino leaders and um, people in the Latino community knowing that they were going to need to take quick action to protect themselves and their communities. Um, As Dr. Patricia Tellez-Giron, who is the co-chair of the Latino Health Council uh, here in in Madison, told me, we knew that kind of the procedures about how to deal with the virus weren't being formulated necessarily with Latinos in mind and that Latinos were going to need some special things, whether it was Uh, Messages translated to Spanish, messages being given by people um, that Latinos would trust and know, all sorts of things like that, Uh, special considerations for the kinds of jobs that people have and the ways that they live, the immigration concerns that they have. So she described to me just this massive effort of uh, local organizations coming together and kind of trying to make the things that government response didn't yet include. And so that looked like um, translating uh, public health announcements. That looked like um, recording videos in Spanish explaining the uh, significance of the pandemic and the importance of wearing masks. It was also the Latino Health Council and others pushing the public health department to create an additional testing site at Villager Mall on South Park Street and then uh, hire around 18 uh, bilingual COVID specialists who could speak Spanish and um, tend well to the needs of Latinos. And then on a non-healthcare front, that looked like, for example, the Latino Consortium for Action uh, creating a COVID fund that would provide financial assistance to qualifying families, for example, undocumented families that did not qualify for uh, the federal government's assistance. And as a part of your reporting, you spoke with a couple of some of those young adults who took jobs, you know, on the COVID front lines. Could you tell us a little bit about some of those individuals that you spoke with? Yeah, I spoke to two recent college grads who'd been hired for these uh, bilingual COVID specialist jobs and who now do everything from registering uh, patients coming in for COVID tests to calling to give people their COVID results to swabbing noses themselves. They told me that uh, because the bilingual staff are in such demand, they are trained to work 
um, in all of the different types of work that is done at these testing sites. And one of the folks I talked to, uh, Gilberto Osuna Leon, uh, he's a future doctor. He's uh, already been accepted to medical school. And so doing something like this is kind of comes naturally to him. He's been involved in public health efforts for Latinos in the area for a long time. But it was also pretty interesting to talk to Alondra Kachel, and she described herself as not being a science person. She is not, you know, had not planned to work in healthcare, although she had um, at some points as a kid thought about being a medical interpreter. This is Alondra Kachel talking about why she was so excited to take this job. This is coming from personal experience, but as a child, I had to go to the medical room a lot because I was just uh, uh, double <laughs> going up, breaking my leg, breaking some rib, whatever, <laughs> hitting my head. But that meant, you know, <laughs> I'm going to the ER a lot or, you know, just checkups and whatever. And I, I know of that feeling of what it means to going and not having things translated or interpreted. And that fear, like my parents are in the back of my head and my heart every time I go there because then some parents come to me and like, oh, I feel so thankful that you're here and you understand. And I am serious when I say that there's no other better feeling than just to know that you, you are valued that way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. What did the people you talked to think the government ought to do to protect Latinos? Yeah, uh, Dr. Tejas Giron definitely, she emphasized that you know she appreciated the work of the local public health officials and she was glad to have been able to partner with them. But in her mind, the real success story here was the way that these grassroots organizations and uh, individuals came together to kind of fill a gap in the government response um, and to kind of look out for the folks who maybe weren't going to be as fully looked out for otherwise. And so, yeah, she when I asked her what else would she like to see the government do, she laughed and she said, well, let me where should I start? She emphasized, um, and multiple people I talked to emphasized, that they felt that that it was going to be important to provide support also for undocumented individuals and to provide the kind of workplace protections and financial support that people need to be able to stay safe at work and stay home from work when they need to. When I spoke to Ramon Ortiz, the vice chair of the Wisconsin Latino Chamber of Commerce, he shared this similar sentiment, and he said that, you know, looking out for the undocumented is essential for keeping everyone safe. If the federal government did not recognize the humanity of the undocumented, I will say that is probably the poetic justice of COVID. COVID did see the humanity of the undocumented. They had no problem seeing them as a host for the virus. And once that virus took hold in their community, people realized, the larger community realized that that was part of their community as well. But Karen Menendez-Collar, the executive director of Centro Hispano, said that the challenges that the Latino community has faced in the pandemic have really just been kind of a more extreme version of the sorts of challenges that that community is dealing with all the time. And so she hopes that we'll kind of learn some lessons from this um, to create 
a better setup for services in the future? I think it's been a big wake-up call to say, like, how do we advocate to make sure that the systems are able to rise to the challenge during times of crisis, but also during normal times? The pandemic is hitting Latinos in Madison hard, but your story also highlights how people are getting by anyhow. Can you tell me about a few of the signs you found that you think really highlight that? Yeah, to me, that was one of the most interesting things about this story was you know, again and again, people were telling me that this is not a sad story, like that this is not a Latinos are victims and look how sad it is for them kind of um, situation, that they really felt like this was a situation where people were pushing hard, taking care of each other and surviving. So um, that's what I tried to show in the story. So the story highlights everyone from, for example, uh, the owners of El Panzón restaurant, um, personal favorite of mine ever since I I wrote about it for uh, the Cap Times back last summer. But it's a Mexican restaurant uh, that specializes in these enormous sandwiches that are as big as a plate um, called Samitas. And... Uh, the owners, Anahi Rojas Munoz and Jose Antonio Vasquez, um, they're a husband and wife team. Uh, and they talked to me about how the pandemic has been really difficult for them. Uh, definitely, you know, their food is takeout friendly, but of course, they're seeing a decline in uh, customers uh, and sales. So they just talked about how they've been taking on longer hours themselves. They no longer have their teenage kids come in and help them because they're worried about their kids uh, getting sick. So they just keep their kids at home. Um, And they have had to both shorten their business hours a bit and uh, cut hours for their two paid employees. But, you know, they they just said they've been we've been trying whatever we can to try to draw people. Uh, And they did create a a tiny bar uh, in within the restaurant uh, and offered new menu items. And they said that actually what they'd really like to see is for the pandemic to be shortened as much as possible, even if that meant more extreme restrictions. They said if if we needed to do a lockdown that was for a whole month, we would do it. We just want everything to close because, uh, as uh, Jose described, it's better to have like a fast, quick pain uh, than to keep suffering that same pain for a long time. And then there were just some real bright spots. So when I called Baltazar Deán de Santana, uh, who is the executive director of the Latino Academy for Workforce Development, he just emphasized to me uh, how many more people are enrolled in their workforce development classes and their GED classes, that they're seeing more students uh passing their GED exams. Uh, They had a class for students wanting to earn a commercial driver's license that they would usually offer in person to like 15 to 20 students. And when they created a virtual class for the first time, more than 70 students signed up. And so he talked about how they were so worried at the start of the pandemic that their students would really struggle when they switched to virtual learning. And he, he said he knows that's the case, that he knows some students 
still aren't able to access things online. But really, enrollment has been up in their classes. Attendance has been up. And he just talked about how, you know, he he and his uh, staff just want to do everything they can for their students uh, and be as resilient as they are. COVID is hard, you know, it has impacted in many, many ways. It has been difficult for, for Latino Academy, for small nonprofits. But uh, we should never use COVID as an excuse mm-hmm. to not provide service to the community that we serve. And then even Sonia and Carlos Avila, um, you know, they're they're eager to reopen uh, their dance classes, but they are not making any plans about when that will be because they know it would be too dangerous to bring their students together right now. So they're actually staying busy at home sewing costumes for their dancers. Uh, they sew these really elaborate Aztec uh, costumes, for example, for uh, their traditional dances. Um, and those costumes, which are adorned with all of these uh, feathers and sometimes in kind of embroidered Aztec calendars, those can take months to create. But they're at home right now and they're spending their time doing that with the hope that, you know, when they finally can gather with their students again and perform again, that the students will be even more motivated and excited to be back together um, with their new costumes. Well, I certainly hope that they can get uh, back together soon. Um, those dances sound, uh, sound so beautiful. Natalie, is there anything that didn't make it into the final story that, um, that you'd like to share? Well, um, this story was challenging because obviously there are so many different ways that the pandemic has affected lives um, and Latino lives locally. And um, it's hard to figure out, you know, how to fit everything in that I wanted to fit in. Um, but one thing that didn't make it into this cover story, but will actually be a separate story of its own, I wanted to find out how new moms and pregnant women were were dealing with um, the pandemic. I know that pregnant women are at heightened risk of serious complications from COVID. Um, And so I talked to two women who had babies during uh, the pandemic. And I spoke with a woman from uh, Roots for Change, a local doula cooperative, about how uh, the folks who support women during their pregnancies and um, in the time after their pregnancies are still doing that work in whole new ways during this pandemic time. Well, I look forward to reading that one as well once it's published um, in the Cap Times. Natalie, thank you so much for sharing all about your story. Thank you so much, Abby. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Well, thanks for listening to my conversation with Cap Times podcast producer and reporter Natalie Yar. Tune in next week for a conversation about the Cap Times next cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Mad Splainers on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or wherever else you do your podcast listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening.
This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.